Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Was it the dandy in the living room, the gardener in the cutting shed, or the lady of the house, the first lady, as she was first called, who did the deed? It was a White House mystery surrounding a presidential leak and a congressional inquiry at the start of the Civil War. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. On December 3, 1861, Abraham Lincoln delivered his first annual message to Congress. He'd been elected 13 months earlier as the 16th president, representing the anti-slavery Republican Party. He wasn't the only president. By the time he wrote his State of the Union address, Jefferson Davis was calling himself the president of the Confederate States of America. The Civil War was underway, and had been for eight months since the bombardment of Fort Sumter, outside of Charleston, South Carolina. In his address, President Lincoln announced the retirement of Winfield Scott, old fuss and feathers, the head of the army who had taken responsibility for the Union route at Bull Run, or Manassas, if you choose. By the time of his retirement, the 71-year-old general weighed 300 pounds and was known as old fat and feeble. McClellan was taking over, the president announced in his written address. The speech was not extremely famous. Lincoln had a few others he scribbled on the back of his envelope that endured a little longer. It did contain the sturdy line, The struggle of today is not altogether for today. It is for a vast future also. But there was a problem. Sections of the speech, which was to be read that afternoon of December 3rd, had already appeared that morning in the New York Herald. An unprecedented leak. We're waist-deep in leaks today, but... Back then, to have information that was so close to the president was an embarrassment for the White House and the president, but also a national security risk. It was rumored that Confederate sympathizers worked in the White House. Was there someone on the inside working against the president? How serious a breach was it? The incident became a part of a House congressional inquiry. Local wags in Washington gossiped about who could have been the source, and the hunt was on for the culprit. The first suspect in the drama was Henry Wickoff, who referred to himself as the Chevalier. I'm going to pronounce it Wickoff, but in some of the old letters of the time, it's spelled Wyckoff, W-Y-K-O-F-F. 
which suggests perhaps somebody might have pronounced it Wyckoff. But anyway, Wyckoff, the Chevalier. He was a dandy and a diplomat who was a secret contributor to the newspaper The Herald, which had published The Scoop. In addition to his fine dress, Wyckoff had imposing mutton-chop sideburns, thick, bold statements. He could not speak so boldly from the top of his head. That is not a judgment on his powers of extemporaneous speech. It is to say that he had thinning hair, which he scraped across the top of his noggin to cover the real estate exposed there. Though he didn't have a mustache, he looked a little bit like the villain who ties the damsel to the train track in those old frantic silent movies. His caricature on the Saturday, August 16, 1862 version of Vanity Fair shows a man who, despite being drawn in pen and ink, looks like he's been held under the butter dispenser at the movie theater for a fortnight. The caption of the Vanity Fair cover, on which Wyckoff appears, says the Chevalier Henry Wyckoff as the political Paul Pry. Paul Pry was a play in three acts at the time. The storyline focuses around a kind of meddlesome, mischievous, comic miscreant who is constantly curious and mucking about. He's he's not able to uh, stay out of any endeavor, and he's always leaving his umbrella behind as he uh, to give him an, an excuse to return to a scene in order to eavesdrop. Born in Pennsylvania, Wyckoff has spent a great deal of time abroad in England and Italy and Spain, independently wealthy. He had reportedly charmed Queen Isabella of Spain, who knighted him. Lord Palmerston, the Prime Minister of England, also reportedly employed Wyckoff as a British spy in France. During this period in the middle of the 19th century, Wyckoff seems to have become embroiled in the affections of a woman named Mrs. Gamble. And what a gamble it was. His 18-year pursuit of the young woman ended by Wyckoff getting himself arrested in Genoa, Italy, for abducting her. It is quite a tale to read. If you choose to, you can read about it in his book, which is called My Courtship and Its Consequences, which is more than 400 pages, an account of the period between 1835, when he first met the lovely Miss Gamble, and the period where he gets arrested and spends 15 months in jail. After a very dramatic scene, Wyckoff wrote the book to proclaim his innocence. He claimed that the charges were trumped up uh, in part by the British to get back at him for being a double agent on behalf of the French. But the book is also a kind of a threat to the woman, Miss Gamble, to extract a statement that Wyckoff is innocent. Here's how he describes the point of his book in his own book. All I wanted was a statement signed by Miss Gamble that I was not guilty of any violent or indelicate conduct towards her whilst in my apartment at Genoa, November 15, 1851, and consequently that the widespread allegations that I had menaced her with pistols and chloroform were utterly false and calumnous. So in the transcript of the trial, there's a great deal of discussion of whether Wickoff was simply playful with the chloroform, and who hasn't been a time or two, or whether he used it to drug the young Miss Gamble. So anyway, Henry Wickoff is a character of nothing if not mystery. But he was also apparently very charming, according to Lincoln scholar and biographer Henry Holzer. In Holzer's book, Lincoln and the Power of the Press, he describes Wickoff as having, quote, spent so much time abroad that he seemed vaguely foreign, attractively so, to men and women alike, unquote. As one Washington editor described him as shrewd, and that he had a romantic ability to, quote, talk of love, law, literature, and war, could describe the rulers and thinkers of the time, could gossip of courts and cabinets, of the boudoir and salon, of commerce and the church, of Dickens and Thackeray. Wyckoff was further described this way. You might travel a long way before meeting a more pleasant companion than the cosmopolite Wyckoff, 
He has seen more of the world than most men, has mingled with society of every shade and grade, has tasted of poverty and affluence, talks several languages fluently, is skilled in etiquette, art, and literature, and without proclaimed convictions, is a shrewd politician who understands the motives and opinions of others. Wyckoff arrived into the life of Mary Todd Lincoln. Early in the Lincoln administration, she was lonely, sad to have left Springfield, and desperate to create a salon in Washington. Wyckoff became a part of her inner circle, what she called the Beaumont Friends of the Blue Room. These salons that Mary Todd Lincoln set up took their name from the Blue Room, the White House room with high windows, and she held these salons while her husband, the president, was consumed with matters of state and affairs on the upper floor. Here's how Daniel Mark Epstein writes about it. In his book on the Lincolns, fascinated by the Chevalier's knowledge of books, manners, and gossip about the rich and the famous during the winter of 1861 and 62, Mrs. Lincoln gave this chameleon the run of the White House, where he was seen visiting at all hours. He was often the first to arrive at receptions and the last to leave. According to Jean Harvey Baker's biography of Mary Todd Lincoln, because some of the regulars were not considered fit company for respectable women, Mary Todd Lincoln received anonymous warnings to which she paid no attention. That is because, as journalist and financier Henry Villard wrote at the time in his memoirs, Mary Todd Lincoln allows herself to be approached and continuously surrounded by a common set of men and women whose barefaced flattery easily gained controlling influence over her. Wickoff, he writes, this is Villard, showed the utmost assurances in his appeals to the vanity of the mistress of the White House. I myself heard him compliment her upon her looks and dress in so fulsome a way that she ought to have blushed and banished the impertinent fellow from her presence. She accepted Wickoff as a major-domo, in general and in special as a guide in manners of social etiquette, domestic arrangements, and personal requirements, including her toilette and, as always, welcome company for visitors in her salon and on her drives. Wyckoff called himself the First Lady's social advisor. My favorite description of his relationship with Mary Todd Lincoln comes from The Lincolns in the White House by Gerald Packard. He smoothly sucked a First Lady, unable to distinguish between real friends and false, into the shiny residue of his oily sophistication. One reason Mary Todd Lincoln may not have paid attention to the warnings was that the war had made holding salons difficult. The politics of the time kept great families of Virginia and Maryland away, and other hostesses in Washington were more popular. Wickoff played a role in helping Mary Todd Lincoln refurbish the White House, traveling with her to New York and Philadelphia and Boston to make purchases for the house. It was in dire need of repair, as the First Lady saw it. When she first arrived at the White House, she'd gone from room to room with her sisters and noted that the furniture was broken and askew. The wallpaper sagged off the walls. The carpet showed the wood flooring through its holes, and the basement was filthy and rat-infested. David Herbert Donald, the famous Lincoln biographer, wrote that the whole place had the air of a run-down, unsuccessful third-rate hotel. Seeing the shabby condition of the White House, the First Lady went on a shopping spree. Uh, sure, the country was embroiled in an insurrection, but Mary Todd Lincoln had her appetites and would not be deterred. Julia Taft, who acted as a kind of babysitter for the Lincolns, recounts her time with the Lincolns, and while characterizing Mrs. Lincoln as a kind woman, she explains why, if Mrs. Lincoln wanted something, she was certain to get it, so if she wanted the White House to be improved, there was going to be very difficult getting in her way. Says Julia Taft, it was an outstanding characteristic of Mary Todd Lincoln that she wanted what she wanted when she wanted it, and no substitute. 
In Daniel Mark Epstein's book, The Lincoln's Portrait of a Marriage, he recounts a story told by Julia Taft of a party where Mary Todd Lincoln saw Julia's mother wearing a bonnet that she liked and demanded it from her. Unfortunately, Mary Todd Lincoln, in her escapades to the East Coast big cities, overspent a great deal on refurbishing the White House, and by late 1861, the bills had arrived. Here's how Gerald M. Packard puts it. The storm broke in the latter part of 1861 when the bills from the merchants of the New York, Philadelphia, and Boston started arriving at the White House. The totals far exceeded Congress's $20,000 appropriation, the overage amounting to $6,700, a sum whose magnitude she, that would be Mary Todd Lincoln, realized could damage the president's reputation or probity. Next into the drama comes a second key player, and that's the White House gardener John Watt. Why the White House gardener? Well, he was needed not so much for his ability to tend to the hydrangea, but for his skill at monkeying with the bills. He knew how to inflate receipts to line his own pockets. Well, Mary Todd Lincoln needed him to show her how to hide this overspending for the White House renovation. This again from Packard. Trying to disguise this information, the First Lady turned to her head groundskeeper, John Watt, who evidently flattered that the President's wife would take him into her confidence, offered advice on how the accounts might be rearranged, cooked in modern terms, thus keeping the overdraft from her husband. One of Watt's suggestions was for the First Lady to discharge the White House steward and have Mrs. Watt formally assume the position, though Mary Lincoln would be doing the actual work of the steward and retain the salary for herself. Next, Mary Todd Lincoln, facing this confrontation with her husband over the bills, begged the commissioner of public buildings, Benjamin French, to intercede for her. Her argument was basically to tell the, tell the president that it's common to run over in the bills with appropriations and, and to just tell him how much it costs to refurbish a White House. The president was unsympathetic, of course, but um, but he was also un, kind of unknowing. I mean, he had a war going on, so he didn't know that all this fancy wallpaper and um, chandeliers and silver in China was being purchased. But when he found out how much she had overrun the costs, he said, I'll pay it out of my pockets first. It would stink in the nostrils of the American people to have it said the president of the United States had approved a bill overrunning an appropriation of $20,000 for flubdubs for this damned old house when the soldiers cannot have blankets. This quote is is often used. It's potentially apocryphal, but uh, anyway, it's just too good to get the word flubdubs in there. Also, you you may remember valiant and dutiful whistle-stop listeners, the, the uh, stink that was made in the election of 1840 or in the run-up of the election of 1840 about Martin Van Buren, the magician, the wire puller and president who uh, was the eighth president of the United States behind uh, Andrew Jackson, who um, was attacked in the Golden Spoon oration for having overspent uh, on lavish White House appointments. So why does this all matter? Well, the, the rumor that flew through Washington was that Mary Todd Lincoln had leaked the contents of her husband's State of the Union to Wickoff, and then Wickoff had gave it to the Herald in order to pay her lavish bills. Now, these rumors were circulated by Lincoln's adversaries who wanted to make him look ridiculous and drag him into scandal. Also, the reason that Mary Todd Lincoln was a good route to scandal is that if there was these, these rumors going around about insiders in the White House who might have sympathies with the Confederacy, anything that hurt the presidency would help the Confederacy. And Mary Todd Lincoln had plenty of enemies in the North because she had a brother, three half-brothers, and three brothers-in-law who were all in the Confederate Army. 
So she came to be rumored, as Lincoln Secretary John Hay put it, as, quote, one of the leaky vessels from whom contraband army news gets afloat. The House Judiciary Committee pursued this leaking question, the leaker question, and the chairman, John Hickman, was ardently anti-slavery. He was from Pennsylvania, and he may very well have been motivated not simply by finding out who leaked the important news, but by his suspicions about the Confederate sympathies of the First Lady hearings in the House Judiciary Committee were already underway into the administration's censoring of items sent over the telegraph wires. This is this is excellently gone over in Holzer's book about Lincoln and the press. He recounts the extreme censorship that took place during the war, the official acts and the unofficial destruction of newspapers in the North that were seen as sympathetic to the secessionist cause. The matter that needed congressional review was whether the newspapers were printing information and opinion that would hurt the Union war cause. Unable to stop the papers, the administration started stopping the telegraph wires that would send the information. Shortly after the uh, attack on Fort Sumter, the government cut the telegraph wires between Washington and Richmond. Soon, according to Holzer, the telegraph wires basically coming out of Washington were under Union military control. The newspapers, of course, fought between themselves, with pro-union papers like the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin claiming that, quote, unpatriotic newspapers were doing more to threaten destruction in the United States than a dozen Bull Run defeats. Like today, when some news organs claim that other news organizations print fake news, the Philadelphia Inquirer told of the Wickoff affair that it never had any reason to testify in any House committee hearings because the writers in the Philadelphia Inquirer were not writing any information that was the product of leaks from scandalmongers. Wickoff was questioned by the Judiciary Committee on this question, whether he'd paid off uh, somebody in the White House to get this information, and under pressure he admitted that he was the spy who had leaked the information to the Herald, but he would not reveal the source uh, that gave him the information. For this, Wickoff was thrown into jail in the U.S. Capitol, in the sub-basement, which was inhabited by others as well, other prisoners as well, the rats, the roaches, and a Newfoundland named Jack. The Newark Herald, when this happened, came to Mrs. Lincoln's defense. It wrote, The Mansfield Herald and sundry other papers of the Republican persuasion are out like blazes on Mrs. Lincoln because she persists in having fine parties and big fun in war times. The little woman has the misfortune to have a brother and other relatives in the Southern Army, and she is half-suspected by many of being at heart a secesh, meaning short for secessionist. By the by, the Republicans in Congress have placed the famous Chevalier Wickoff under arrest because he refuses to tell who furnished him the copy of a part of the president's message which he sent to Bennett of the New York Herald, Bennett being the editor of the New York Herald in advance of its general publication. The Chevalier is an intimate at the White House, and if there is any crinoline in the scrape he is in, he is right to keep mum. Now, the Herald, the newspaper that had received the Wickoff leak, uh, wrote expansively about Wickoff being thrown into jail as if to cover its own tracks. I will now quote at some length from the Herald editorial found by world-class researcher Brian Rosenwald, because it's just so fun to be reading from a newspaper from 1862 on your iPad. The Chevalier Wickoff in his glory, read the item. The Chevalier Wickoff is in his glory at last. He has got just what he wanted, comfortable board and lodging for the winter, free of all pecuniary charge. 
For some time past, he has been going about Washington trying to get a contract of some sort from Secretary Cameron, but unfortunately for him, Cameron always humbugged him, and Wickoff was left out in the cold. The country has at length, however, provided him with a respectable independence, and he will henceforth be able to walk officially up and down, to and fro from the House, the same as the Speaker, with the happy tranquility of mind and conscience, for which he has always been eminently distinguished. He will doubtless enjoy his incarceration in the boarding-house to which he has been consigned, and feel his recollections of old times pleasantly revived, for to him imprisonment is congenial, and a thing to which from long habit he has become cheerfully resigned. He is capable of making himself perfectly at home in a prison, whether it at Washington in Tuscany or Timbuktu, we feel perfectly convinced. Meanwhile, the House of Representatives, to which he is indebted for the honor of this signal recognition, is not devoting its attention to the bank currency, the bankrupt law, or any other vital questions which concern the welfare of the nation. Oh, no. These things are much too trivial for its consideration. It wants to know how the New York Herald is managed and how it succeeds in getting early intelligence of public events. In view of this, therefore, and with a curiosity not to be defeated, it has imprisoned the Chevalier Wickoff for not answering what he knows nothing at all about. What could he have known or seen of the President's message before it was published in the daily newspapers? He might, or anybody might, have hazarded a shrewd guess. What more? However, the facts are facts, as a certain old lady used to say, and there is no disputing that Wickoff is at home in prison again, and of course Louis Napoleon and Lord Palmerston, and other great magnates of the earth whose friendship he has shared, will rally around him in his new winter quarters, and the Chevalier may be expected to have a good time generally. So you see the Herald there, making fun of Congress, making fun of Wickoff, who's given the Herald the information as if there was no connection between the two, genuinely having some fun at everyone's expense. As Wickoff languished, he was rescued by his friend, former Congressman Daniel Sickles. The two had become friends when Wickoff was in Europe, and then picked up again when Wickoff arrived from Europe during the Buchanan administration. Sickles was also a fan of fancy dress and the ladies. He was also a member of the Blue Salon at the Lincolns, and also he was in the scandalous Washington Men's Club. He had come into this scandal through the bed-hopping exploits of his wife. When Sickles found that his wife was sleeping with Philip Barton Key, the son of Francis Scott Key, the author of The Star-Spangled Banner, he shot and killed Mr. Key on a Washington street. Sickles was then acquitted on the unprecedented grounds of temporary insanity. Sickles' fits of passion, however, were not enough to block him from duty in his country's service. However, he became a brigadier general, who then positioned himself as Wickoff's counsel. So, Sickles goes to Wickoff, and I now will give you an account from that I first found on the Lerman Institute's website, which is www.mrlincolnswhitehouse.org, which is really quite good and has lots of great information about the White House at the time. But this account, which I found there and then later in several other books, is from the journalist Ben Purley Poor, who reported about how the House was investigating this and how it dealt with Sickles, who came to plead on behalf of his friend, and then the ultimate resolution of the business of Wickoff, who is in the dungeon of the House, and Sickles is now trying to intercede on his behalf. And this here is journalist Ben Purley Poor's account of the, of the House proceedings. 
The House accordingly directed the sergeant-at-arms to hold Wickoff in close custody, and he was locked up in a room hastily furnished for his accommodation. It was generally believed Mrs. Lincoln had permitted Wickoff to copy those portions of the message that he had published, and this opinion was confirmed when General Sickles appeared as his counsel. The general vibrated between Wickoff's place of imprisonment, the White House, and the residence of Mrs. Lincoln's gardener, named Watt. The committee finally summoned the general before them and put some home questions to him. He replied sharply, and for a few minutes a war of words raged. He narrowly escaped Wickoff's fate, which is to say being thrown in the hooskow. But finally, after consulting numerous books of evidence, the committee concluded not to go to extremities. What happened here should sound somewhat familiar to modern ears. Sickles claimed that he could not tell the committee the answers to who gave his client Wickoff the information, uh, which is to say the speech, because of attorney-client privilege. But then, as the Lerman Institute website recounts, quote, the committee was willing to respect the confidentiality of Sickles' conversation with Wickoff, but it ordered the attorney to detail talks he had with other people. Sickles reluctantly told the committee that he had gone to the White House and interrogated the gardener, John Watt, who confessed that he gave parts of the president's message to Wickoff. Sickles said that he communicated these findings to the president in a note. Sickles may also have irritated his former colleagues during this back and forth because he was a bit of a bag of wind. At least that's how New Yorker uh, George Templeton Strong wrote of him, uh, that Sickles was one of the bigger bubbles in the scum of the legal profession, swollen and windy and puffed out with fetid gas. Now, back to journalist Ben Burley Poor's account. While the examination was pending, the sergeant-at-arms appeared with Watt, Watt the gardener. He testified that he saw the message in the library, and that being of a literary turn of mind, perused it. That, however, he did not make a copy, but having a tenacious memory, carried portions of it in his mind, and the next day repeated them word for word to Wickoff. Meanwhile, Mr. Lincoln had visited the Capitol and urged Republicans on the committee to spare him disgrace. So Watt's improbable story was received, and Wickoff was liberated. It may also have been on the committee's mind that the president's sons were gravely ill at the time. According to historian Michael Burlingame, uh, in February, now this is all happening, by the way, in February of 1862, the address was in December of 1861, but the committee inquiry was in the February 12th, 13th, and 14th time frame of 1862. Anyway, according to historian Michael Burlingame, President Lincoln was eventually confronted by his one of his friends with evidence that Wickoff had been secretly hired as a spy and influence peddler by the Herald. And as uh, one in one account, Lincoln, to the fellow who came and told him this, Lincoln took me by the hand, led me into the office of his private secretary, whom he drove out and locked the door. When Lincoln was shown the documents illuminating what Wickoff was up to, the president said, give me those papers and sit here till I return. Lincoln then went downstairs, found Wickoff, and personally escorted him out of the White House, and that was that. No more Mr. Wickoff at the White House confirmed this was in an account of another one of those old newspapers Rosenwald found for me, the North American and United States Gazette on the 13th of February of 1862. Under the heading of, quote, shown the door, it reads, Mr. Henry Wickoff, otherwise known as Chevalier Wickoff, has been, it is currently stated in Washington, shown the door to the White House. Later, it was learned uh, that the New York Herald reporter S.P. Hanscom testified that Wickoff told me that he got it from Mrs. Lincoln. I would not have sent it, meaning the information over the wires, uh, to his bosses unless I thought he had obtained it from such a responsible source. I readily believed what he told me because I knew that he was frequently up at the White House. White House employee Thomas 
Stackpole, who's a doorkeeper who worked outside the president's office, and he was also a White House watchman, told Senator Orville Browning, a Republican from Illinois, a few weeks after this whole affair was taken care of, after Lincoln had testified on the Hill and they decided not to press charges. Nevertheless, Stackpole went to this Republican Senator Browning and said that the December 1861 message, quote, had been furnished to Wickoff by Mrs. Lincoln. She got it from the superintendent of government printing and gave it to Wickoff in the library, where he read it and gave it back to her. Stackpole was an interesting character. He told the senator all of this while pleading with him to find a job for Watt, his friend. In fact, they'd both been accused of being Confederate sympathizers. And he explained that Watt had to go because he was such a bad influence on the First Lady. How bad? Well, it was later learned by this senator and also Lincoln's secretary, Hay, and pretty much everybody else, just what bad business Mary Don Lincoln had been up to with the help of Mr. Watt. Watt basically facilitated the, the sale of White House items to cover her expenditures. So he facilitated the sale of a White House rug. And this all comes from Hayes' letters. Anyway, Watt sold a White House rug to a Washington photographer to pay for an outstanding bill. The carpet was then replaced at public expense. According to the New York World, when Mary Lincoln ordered $800 worth of China from E.V. Hotwout and Company, she evidently tried to hide other purchases amounting to about $1,400, having the total bill, $2,200, applied to the China alone. So basically, she overpaid for the China in order to uh, hide other purchases. When the skeptical Interior Secretary raised the question, the merchant reportedly acknowledged that he'd overcharged Mrs. Lincoln to disguise unspecified items. It was also reported that Mary Lincoln also suggested to a New York merchant that he provide the White House with a $500 chandelier, charge 1000 for it, and thus allowing her to, to disguise $500 worth of jewelry purchases. A businessman refused to cooperate and apparently lost the sale. It was also widely rumored that Mary Todd Lincoln appropriated the manure piles, which had always been the perquisite of the gardener, and used the funds from the sale of that commodity for her own purposes. Basically, she became a trader in manure sales, and you would claim that the, the purchase of manure cost more than it did, and then take the difference and spend it on White House finery. There are also some reports that Watt demanded $20,000 in exchange for three of Mrs. Lincoln's incriminating letters. To get rid of him, Watt was appointed to a $1,500 a year job at the patent office in order to get him just out of the White House and out of Mrs. Lincoln's uh, company. So that's it. That is the story of another, the other time that a president had to testify before Congress. It was a short business because the congressional inquirers did not want to embarrass a president in the thick of the Civil War. Mary Todd Lincoln, though, was quite a piece of work, of course, as was Henry Wyckoff, who repaired to Europe to live out the rest of his days joining up with more extraordinary tales. But for the moment, that's it for this tale of Whistlestop. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Our Whistlestop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who really had to dive deep into the dusty fog of the archives to pull out the documentation for this one. And we're very grateful. Whistlestop is a part of the Panoply Network. You can explore the entire roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. Thanks again for listening. For Whistlestop, I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation.